BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to Healing with Dr. George, The Power of Chicano Latinx Art. This is a podcast that explores the themes of self and community healing, whether as an artist, curator, collector, or admirer. I am your host, Dr. George Jesus Mesa, a Chicano clinical psychologist with a passion for promoting and preserving Chicano Latinx art. I am working in conjunction with our partners at www.latinoarte.com an online marketplace that showcases and promotes the work of Chicano Latinx artists throughout the United States. Our guests for the podcast will include celebrated artists, collectors, curators, and influencers who will share their experiences and perspectives on Chicano Latinx art as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx art. Our guest, Eduardo Diaz, is a 36-year veteran of the Latino cultural field. He is currently serving as the Deputy Director of the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Latino in Washington, D.C. Eduardo was an instrumental force in the development of this institution and continues to be actively involved in the growth and development of the museum. The National Museum of the American Latino supports research, exhibitions, public and educational programs, digital content, and collections about the experiences of Latinos in the U.S. Prior to joining the Smithsonian, Eduardo was the executive director of the National Hispanic Cultural Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Prior to joining this organization, Eduardo managed a private consulting firm that served arts institutions and agencies, statewide advocacy groups, and community-based organizations. From 1981 to 1999, Eduardo served as the director of cultural affairs for the city of San Antonio, Texas. Eduardo, what an honor it is to have you here with us today. No, it's my pleasure. My pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for agreeing to the interview. Uh, you have done such significant, significant work uh, in the country um, in terms of Chicano, Latino art. I'm kind of wondering, can you tell us about what your early childhood experiences were like? Well, I, I had the great benefit to be raised by two teachers, uh, my parents, uh, Magdaleno and Elisa Diaz, were uh, elementary school teachers. Uh, my mother eventually um, became a member of the school board in San Bernardino, California, where I was raised. Uh, I was born in El Paso, Texas, but moved to Southern California at a very early age. 
you know, and for that generation of Mexican American, um, they're getting the college degree, as you can imagine, was pretty unusual. But one of the benefits, of course, is that um, they were off on the summers, right? Because school was closed, and my parents were always very interested in art and culture. And so, you know, I would go to museums. We would, you know, do the touring the missions of California. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, an immersion with my parents because they, as as educators, of course, they would pile on all kinds of opportunities for my sister and I to, to learn, including about art. And so I had a very early exposure to art itself. I don't know that I would, you know, say that it was Chicano art because at the time, and I was born in 1950, you know, it would it would be hard to find, you know, during my childhood, a body of work that you would maybe call Chicano. However, having said that, I think there are a lot of early Mexican and Mexican-American artists who are very active and who unfortunately have not received the kind of attention that they deserve. Although there was a show at the Autry Museum there in, in Los Angeles that I think I believe it was curated by Tere Romo, that I think really shed light on some of these early artists. And so I don't know, and I don't recall if I ever saw any of that work. I might have, but I can't really verify it. It wasn't until I went to San Diego State in 1968 and became very active in the Chicano movement. Again, my parents were not only school teachers, but they were very active in the Mexican-American community on the west side of San Bernardino, in the Mount Vernon area. And so it was a natural inclination for me to get very involved with, at that time, the a nascent political movement called the Chicano Movement. And being in San Diego, we're talking about Chicano Park of April of 1970. We're talking about the establishment of Los Toltecas de Aslan, Centro Cultural de Raza in, in Balboa Park. And so, you know, I met Mario Toledo and Queso and Victor Ochoa. And, um, you know, Yolanda Lopez. And so, I mean, you know, these were artists that were really beginning to, were part of what was a Chicano art movement. So that's I, I, where my exposure to what we now know as Chicano art really began. And so when you were at San Diego State, what was it like being a Chicano student activist in those early days? It was a, it was remarkable. There was so much going on, you know, not only Chicano Park and Centro Cultural, but, you know, we were active in at, with Mecha, Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Aslan, on campus to establish what was then known as Mexican-American Studies, right? <clears throat> we sat in in the President Malcolm Love's office. There was a lot of activism at the time. Of course, we were right in the middle of the Vietnam War and the Cambodian invasion of 1970. So there was just a lot of activism going on, and it was very exciting times. I, You know, I mean, it's remarkable, actually. And there was a very strong Chicano movement at that time and on campus as well, People like Gus Chavez, Gus Segade, there's, you know, these great leaders that we had. Lurista was involved. So, you know, you just absorbed all that. And and I was in the middle of it, and I'm a better person for it. And 
I just saw a lot of change, including the establishment of Mexican-American studies, which, of course, now is known as Chicana and Chicano studies. So, yeah, um, exciting times. That's going on. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Yeah, Chicanos were getting their power back in those days. Yes, they were. And it was all throughout California. Of course, a lot of things going on in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico as well. Um, but since I lived in California at the time, um, you know, I was more aware of what was going on. The United Farm Workers, of course, you know, the, the Teatro, Teatro Campesino. A lot of teatros had emerged. A lot of art making, music, los, you know, Los Alcarans Mojados. Uh, led by Chunky Sanchez, Campas Descanse. So, you know, we just had a lot going on. And, you know, the, the academic world was alive, you know, with uh, the establishment of Chicano Studies, Plan de Santa Barbara. My daughter, in fact, right now, my oldest daughter is a professor of Chicana Chicano Studies at UC Santa Barbara. So she's like <laughs> part of that lineage, if you will, right, of, of continuing on with, with um, what you know, took place first at UCSB. So, yeah, I mean, it was just a remarkable, a remarkable time. Well, what did you do after San Diego State? I went to law school at UC Davis, and um, we were very active with, um, you know, continuing my activism with the Chicano Law Students Association. I was the person that was in charge of recruitment at the time. We had a very large and very active Chicano Law Students Association. We spent a lot of time on the picket lines of secondary boycotts and, you know, in support of the United Farm Workers. Cesar Chavez came to speak, Dolores Huerta, et cetera, the leaders of the, of the UFW. And so, you know, I mean, my, my, my um, activism continued there. I also then became, you know, very, very, um, What's the word? Active, not active, I guess, following, I followed the Royal Chicano Air Force, right, which was, which is a a very important uh, Chicano, Chicano art collective based in Sacramento, right? Jose Montoya, Juanicio Orozco, Tere Romo, Juan Carrillo, Esteban Villa, Ricardo Favela. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't, not be involved, you know, and not follow the the work of the Royal Chicano Air Force if you were living anywhere in that area, right? Davis, of course, is only 15 miles to the west of Sacramento. So, you know, my interest in art continued and my activism as well. Um, and after law school, where did you, you ended up moving to Texas, I believe? 
Well, in my first year, I, I got exposed uh, to the La Razón Unida Party because in Crystal City, Texas, I, I clerked between my first and second year. And I had I was born in El Paso, but I had never been east of El Paso in Texas. And as you know, if you go to the map, El Paso is the farthest west in the state of Texas as you can possibly be, right? So... For me, going to San Antonio and then heading down to Crystal City, uh, the Winter Garden area, Uvalde, by the way, very close by, Ken Paz Descans and Ellos, um, the kids. Um, in fact, we used to work in Uvalde uh, once a week. We had a law clinic there. Anyway, this was the summer of 73, and, and the law office that I was clerking with was located in Crystal City, Texas. Well, this was at the height of the Razón Unida parties, um, the school walkouts in Cristal, um, the development of the party, José Ángel Gutiérrez, Ramsey Muñiz, um, Virginia Musquiz, uh, you know, again, Art, you know, Amado Peña, César Martínez, Mel Casas, Kathy Vargas, all the great artists from that area, particularly from San Antonio, were very active, of course. So, you know, I went from a California sort of activism to a whole other Tejano, uh, Chicano activism, which was really opened my eyes. Um, you know, Crystal City and those, you know, Uvalde, Cotula, Pearsall, Laredo, the you know, there, there are a lot of migrant workers, right? So you would see them getting ready to go up north to pick Betabel or Manzana or whatever. So, you know, that kind of opened my eyes a lot to um, what was going on. And, of course, the Texas farm workers and the march that they led as well. So, yeah, um, you know, I continued to be involved um, uh, with the... Um, with different aspects of the Chicano movement in Texas and in California. When did you begin to work as an arts administrator specifically? You know, I was thinking about that because, you know, I've been at this business for 40 years and it's, you know, it's hard for me to go back all the way to the beginning, but I guess I, I lived in Albuquerque for about seven years, six years after law school, after I graduated from law school in 1976 I had clerked the following summer at the um, appellate division of the New Mexico, um, not the attorney general's office. Oh, my gosh. I forget which office it was that I worked for, frankly, at, at the state of New Mexico. But it was um, an opportunity for me to, you know, get more involved with, with appellate work versus, you know, trial work. So... And then getting to know New Mexico, it's another world, right? An another area where you have lots of act. You had lots of activism and still do. Um, you know, you had the 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 land grant movement, Reyes Lopez Tijerina. You know, all the big, a very powerful Chicano movement there as well in Albuquerque and Santa Fe and up north in Rio Riba County. But uh, you know, I guess at that time, I you know, I was going to. I graduated, and then they offered me a job at the public defender's office. That's where I was we're going to be working with. And then I decided I just didn't want to, you know, be a lawyer. I, I guess I decided that when I was in law school at Davis, I tried out for a law school. It goes like this primarily. The first year, you're scared to death. You're just trying to survive. 
The second year, um, you're getting into the swing of things and you're starting to figure it out. The third year, you've already figured it out and you want to get the heck out of there, you know, take the bar exam and get on with your life. Well, I didn't, I felt like I, because of the work that I was doing with the Chicano Law Students Association, I did, I did a lot of work in the media art. So I really got the kind of the bug bit me, you know what I mean? And um, then I had also wanted to act in the community theater scene because I'd been very influenced by Teatro Campesino, Teatro de la Esperanza, all the teatros that had sprung up during the Chicano movement. And I always was very interested in doing that. And I had an opportunity to audition for a play at Sacramento State. It was called Regalos de Tristeza. It was written by Manuel Pickett, who was a... um, He wrote... um, plays for the for Teatro de la Esperanza. And this was about a Christmas play, the farm worker family, and I played the grandfather. And, you know, again, I was bitten by the arts bug, you know what I mean? And and so then I said, you know what, I, I, I really want to explore this area of, of the media arts. And so I had already moved to New Mexico. I told the um, public defender's office that I would not be accepting their position. And I walked into the ABC affiliate in Albuquerque and asked for a job as a reporter. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, no experience, right? But they w- took a chance on me and figured, you know, I, was, I had a lot of degrees, so that, you know, that was impressive, right? It's good on your resume. He's got some intelligence, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, they gave me the job, and I did a, a program, a public affairs program called Realidades in Nuevo Mexico, and I covered a lot of what was going on. With uh, with and, you know, the Rasuni the party was also very active in that area, and so I did a lot of work. I remember doing in Rio Arriba County, which is in Española, which is about thirty miles to the northwest of Santa Fe, where they were very active in trying to root out a corrupt sheriff by the name of Emilio Naranjo. So I covered a lot of stories in that area, not only in northern New Mexico but also in southern New Mexico. I I was involved with covering a story. Uh, with the waste uh, disposal site in Carlsbad, New Mexico, and actually got arrested as a as a reporter there. I was cleared later, but because you know I was doing my job as a reporter. Um, but you know, I, so I just kind of backed into it. We had a, a collective uh, at the P, I'm sorry, the NPR station in Albuquerque, KUNM, which is affiliated with the University of New Mexico, which is where and which is located in Albuquerque. And so we had a collective. And I guess it was that point where I started understanding that, you know, in order to make cultural work, you know, you really need to be organized, right? And it wasn't just about, you know, curating the series of songs that you were going to play on air as a, as a radio DJ, right, or doing a report. I used to also be a stringer for... Um, both NPR and there was a Spanish uh, language um, news service based out of PBS, KPBS in San Diego that I, Enfoque Nacional. And so I did several reports for them as well in Spanish. So, you know, I was on my, I was on my way there. And then I got a job later, uh, a job opened at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center in San Antonio to direct the San Antonio Cine Festival, which is the, the, the longest lasting, uh, the, the oldest uh, Latino film festival in the country, and uh, took the job and then um, moved to San Antonio. I had a 
Uh, I was married then, and I had a young child, the, the professor daughter. And, um, you know, started working in San Antonio and then came on to manage the Guadalupe Theater, which is part of the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. And I think that's really where I started becoming an administrator, right? Because I was in charge of budgets and I was in charge of making sure that, you know, the theater was um, operating smoothly and, um, you know, managing people and that kind of thing. So I guess that was like 1983, right? Where I think I started to understand the importance of arts management and cultural management. And how did you make the transition to the Smithsonian? Oh, wow. Well, uh, that was in 2008. Um, so fast forward, I had been the um, San Antonio, okay, San Antonio, worked in San Antonio at the Guadalupe. Then I went to, to I was recruited back to my my place of birth, El Paso, to work on a small cultural um, center. Um, it was a local arts agency, private uh, arts council. And then um, the city of San Antonio was looking for a new director of cultural affairs. So I applied and got the job. I was, I was the first director of cultural affairs for the city of San Antonio. Uh, at the time, the arts program at the city was managed as a division of the Parks and Recreation Department and the city manager and um, the leadership there decided that San Antonio really deserved to have a standalone local arts agency. And so I was its first director. So I was there for 10 years. Then I decided to... Um, I decided to become an arts consultant. I had, you know, you, working in city government is very, it's not easy, right? It's, uh, as they say, all politics is local. And I had done, I think, some really good work, and but it was really time to move on, right? Um, I don't think being a lifer in any kind of government situation is necessarily the healthiest thing to do. I mean, that's a personal opinion, but... Um, I decided to open up a small consulting practice, which I managed. I was a sole proprietor, and I did quite well. I was a little scary at first, but I became pretty good at it. And then, you know, my wife is from Albuquerque. My wife at the time is from Albuquerque, was from Albuquerque, and I think there was something pulling us back. And so I applied for the job at the um, National Hispanic Cultural Center, which was then still a new major cultural center in the city of Albuquerque, very large facility, massive actually, and was there for three and a half years. And then the Smithsonian came calling. So they came and recruited me because, um, you know, they needed some leadership there at the Smithsonian Latino Center, which was having a hard time at the, t at the time. And I got the job and that was 2008 and you know, like the rest is history and I'm still here. Um, what were your first, when you started with them, was it with the intention of starting the National Latino Museum? Or? Not really. Uh, to be honest with you, you know, the, the call for the National Museum of the American Latino goes back to 1994 with the release of a report called Willful Neglect, the title of which says it all, right? It was a very damning, a harsh report that the Smithsonian, to, their, to its credit, 
commissioned to take a hard look at what the institution was doing, or rather not doing, to represent the contributions, the many contributions that the Latino community has made over many, many, many years in building this country and shaping its national culture. Um, so that's really when the idea of the museum was was hatched, right? And then subsequent to that, there was another report called Towards the Shared Vision, which was more of a of a planning document, which said, okay, willful neglect says we're falling down on the job pretty badly here. What are we going to do about it? And so then the, the Center for Latino Initiatives, which then later became the Smithsonian Latino Center, was formed in 1997. So this year we're celebrating 25 years of the center. And so, again, you know, it was kind of like the idea of the museum was kind of still on the back burner, right? We were trying to just get other programs started, trying to de decentralize or pan-institutionalize, if you will, the Latino presence throughout the, the Smithsonian. I mean, people need to understand that the Smithsonian is huge. It's, at the time, 19 museums, now 22, because we have two new museums that we're building. Nine research centers, a national zoo, you know, a research center located in Panama, you know, a major summer festival on the mall, the Folklife Festival, which, by the way, is going on as we speak. And, you know, it's it's not an easy task in trying to ensure the Latino Latino presence around the institution. So that was the primary focus. The issue of the museum was then brought back to the front burner in, I want to say, 2008, 2009, with the formation of a National Museum of the American Latino Commission, right, uh, which was appointed by the president and members of Congress. Uh, they submitted their report symbolically on Cinco de Mayo of 2011, and then in the fall of that year is when the efforts began in Congress to pass the museum legislation, which was finally passed in December of 2020, nine years after the first efforts started in Congress. And uh, what was your involvement in developing the National Museum of the American Latino? Well, not much in, at the beginning because it's a legislative process and we do not get involved directly in, in advocating or lobbying Congress for passage of any legislation. We do provide, you know, testimony and provide educational you know, information to Congress if, if called upon to testify, and I've testified before Congress many times uh, on the bill, wanting to know what we're doing, you know, at the Smithsonian to represent the Latino experience. So, but I'm, we were never involved with lobbying for the bill, if you know what I mean. We just, you know, that's not something we're able to do, nor should we do, in my view. But um, once the bill was passed... Um, you know, we started to work on it. But let me back up and say that when you're when you do, when you introduce a, a bill in Congress, right? And if no action is taken within a certain period of time, within the uh, you know each Congress, right? Um, it's 
then the bill has to be reintroduced when the new Congress is installed, right? Usually after an election, right? So around 2014, 2015, when we saw at the Latino Center that there wasn't really much going on with the bill, we decided, wow, why don't we do a gallery? At least we'll have, um, you know, if they don't pass the bill, we'll, we'll have at least a physical space on the mall that we can call our own. Uh, if they do pass the museum bill, well, then we'll switch gears into um, museum building mode, right? Well, that was all very well and good, except in 2015, we had no plan. We had no space that was designated within the Smithsonian to put a gallery. We didn't have a project ma manager, and probably most importantly, we had no money. So this was like the gallery of no, right? Fortunately, we had a very... Uh, honorary and very intrepid board chair by the name of Roel Campos, the lawyer in town here in D.C. from South Texas. And he says, well, I'm going to get some money to start planning, Eduardo. And I said, well, great. And the board raised, our advisory board raised enough money for us to complete a plan for a gallery, which we did in April of 2016. We still had no money and we still had no space and we still had no project manager. But at least we had a plan. Fortunately, he also knew the, the Molina family. These are the children of Dr. C. David and Mary Molina of Long Beach, California, who had formed and built uh, Molina Healthcare, which was a major, which is a major uh, HMO um, in California and operates in other states as well. And um, one thing led to another. We were able to convince the siblings, the, the five, uh, two doctors, a lawyer, an architect, and an arts educator, that a gallery on the National Mall would be a fitting tribute uh, to their parents who had passed. Uh, C. David Molina was a social entrepreneur. He was a teacher, and he was from Yuma, Arizona, and moved to, San, uh, to Long Beach, went to, decided to go to medical school, left teaching and went to medical school at now, what is now UC Irvine. Anyway, we built a gallery. We got $10 million and we built a gallery. No, we raised $28 million for the Molina Gallery, which will serve as the provisional museum of the National Museum of the American Latino, the first gallery. So we opened it on June the 18th uh, and people are loving it. And uh, we'll be there for 10 years because... That's probably how long it's going to take for us to build the full-on uh, National Museum of the American Latino if we look at the African American Hist uh, Museum of African American History and Culture as an example. So we'll operate as a gallery for now. It's, so the museum is a gallery. The gallery is a museum, if you follow me. So we're terribly excited. Now we're in the nitty-gritty of building out staff, right, Um and doing all the site selection, right? We have to figure out where the Smithsonian is going to locate this new museum and understand that we're, Smithsonian is raising twins. We have to also build the Smithsonian American Women's History Museum along with the Latino Museum. So, yeah, it's an exciting time. The decision by the regents of the Smithsonian on the site will be done by this, the end of this year. And then we're going to continue to move forward with building the museum which I think is going to take around 10 years, I would say. In the meantime, we got a beautiful gallery. And your role has been as the administrator. Yes, I am now. We hired a director, 
His name is Jorge Samanillo. He's from History Miami, former director of History Miami, which is the History Museum in the city of Miami. And I am now in, in a deputy director position. And, you know, people will ask me, well, why didn't you apply for the job? Well, I'm 71. <laughs> I don't want to. It's going to take 10 years to build this, this, uh, this museum. I have other plans. It's, it's called retirement. And uh, I'd like to get a few things done, right? Before, as my father would say, antes de ir al otro barrio, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here to support Jorge, support the staff that I've worked with, these 16 people and my staff who have been remarkable. I have the greatest staff ever, and the best staff in the Smithsonian. <laughs> Incredibly creative and hardworking, brilliant. And uh, so I'm going to... Stick around for a little while, make sure Hardy gets off. I got a few projects I want to finish, including one that deals with colorism within our community, the notion of anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity within our community, which you, you know very well continues uh, to persist in a very difficult way. And so we'll deal with that. We'll also build out um, workforce for the new museum, Latino Museum Studies programs that we manage here. It's important that we invest in the future, obviously. So I'm, I'm going to be around and uh, do the good work that I've hopefully been doing, I think I've been doing, um, and um, lay the groundwork for the new museum. What were some of the challenges uh, of getting the museum off and running? Well, I mean, you know, you're talking about uh, this is a several hundred million dollar project, right? The legislation calls for a 50-50 split in the funding, right, for the museum. This, this museum is going to cost a billion dollars, okay, easily. And to, to, to plan, to design, to build, to manage, to operate. And so, yeah, Congress is on the, is supposed to raise, is supposed to allocate or appropriate half of those expenses, well, that means the other half has to come from the private sector. We've raised $28 million for a 4,500-square-foot gallery space, which is the Molina Family Latino Gallery, right? And we have another $17 million that we've already raised for the museum itself. I, with a very small staff, I might add, so I feel very confident, right, that with the museum project uh, ahead of us and with our track record of fundraising, um, we'll have a good shot at it. But that's an enormous lift, that kind of figure. So, you know, I would say fundraising is a big, big challenge. And, of course, building out a staff. Um, we're 17 now, but we're going to need to be many more than that, you know, gearing up for the, uh, for the museum proper. So, you know, I would say staff development and fundraising are going to be key to success, key to the success of the museum moving forward. Um. You have kind of developed a, a pathway as an arts administrator when I think there was no such, there were no, there was no field of study in, in arts administration. No, what, it wasn't. What, what, uh, what would you suggest to young Latinos and Chicanos that are interested in careers in arts in arts administration? Well, you know, I'm, the funny thing about law school is, is that it really prepares you for this kind of work. It seems like a strange thing to say, right? But, but you know, it, it really has helped me to think strategically, to, to learn how to analyze, to learn how to budget, to learn how to advocate, right? 
And so, but you're right. I mean, Georgia was discussed. I went to the School of Hard Knocks, you know what I mean, in terms of arts administration. I think now, you know, you have programs like the uh, uh, Museum Studies Certificate Program at East L.A. College. You have programs in in a graduate level at Claremont Graduate University, then Claremont at California. You have programs at NYU in New York and Columbia University of New York. Michigan State. There are a number of now museum studies programs, George uh, Washington here in Washington, D.C. Those kind of programs didn't exist back in the day, right? So now, you know, young Chicanas, young Chicanos, Latinas, Latinos who are interested in arts administration have options. They have educational options. But they also have, I think, um, options to volunteer, right? To let's say you want to go, you know, you're, you're in all of Los Angeles. I mean, You've got like Betty Avila at Self-Help Graphics, right? Volunteer there. Get to know Betty and her staff, you know, just, you know, or, or Pilar Tompkins-Rivas over at the uh, Lucas, the new Lucas Museum. You have great administrators, uh, Chela Montoya at, the, at LACMA, the LA County Museum of Art. You know, getting yourself into a mentor situation. Volunteer at a major institution or a small institution like Self-Help Graphics and get to know these wonderful very talented arts administrators or La Plaza de Cultura y Artes, or wherever you are in the, in the country, there are a number of institutions that are Latino or Latino serving where there are opportunities for you to volunteer and be a docent. You know, that's one way just to kind of get your feet wet. But, you know, and that's on the experiential side. On the, on the education side, now you have a lot more options than I had ever had uh, going into this kind of work if that's what you want to do. Sure. If you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? <laughs> wow, well, I don't know. I, you know, I, the last two days I've been um, emceeing on the stage at the Folklife Festival with uh, the Tex Maniacs from San Antonio and uh, this group called uh, Revolu, who's a Colombian group, but now based in New York City. I guess I would have become an ethnomusicologist, to be honest with you. Probably what I would have done, right? Because I just love that um, kind of work. Being the crunching numbers and chewing on your nails, you know, worrying about budgets and and hiring the right people and all that nitty gritty stuff. I mean, it's it's a grind, you know, but it's important work. I, I would do it again. Somebody has to do it, George. Somebody has to worry about the infrastructure behind the scenes, making sure the resources are there for artists and cultural workers to do their work for the benefit of our community. Somebody has to do it. And it was me and others. Um, I guess I would do it all over again, but I think maybe I might've gone back to school to get a PhD in ethnomusicology. Interesting. (laughs) I don't know. Well, you have made such significant contributions on so many different levels to the Chicano and Latino community here in the United States. Uh, the Teach Marine Museum recently oh. gave you a very distinguished award, a distinguished award for your sure. work, and you were not able to make it because the museum was opening oh, up, I understand. COVID, COVID, COVID messed up with all of the schedules. I hate it. But uh, we're going back in August. We're going to have a reception there at the at the Cheech. You know, we're co-sponsoring that exhibit. In fact, we're going to fund the national tour of that exhibit. It's going next, I think, to Corpus Christi, Texas, and then it's going to do a national tour, and we're going to fund it. Because we want to make sure that if you're going to be a national museum, you need to be out in the field. You know, you don't right. you can't be in just in the D.C. 
inside the beltway. Correct. So we're very excited. Yeah, I love that. I love what you said about how you know we have children in Los Angeles who have never been to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art or to any art museum for that uh, for that matter, and so that we need to bring the art to those children. Absolutely, and there are ways to do that, and that's our work. You know, that's our work. Of all the significant work that you've done, uh, my last question is going to be, how do you want to be remembered, Eduardo Diaz? You know, I I get a lot of credit, and I get why that's the case, you know. um, And that's fine. You know, I get an award here. I'm getting an award in San Antonio by Unidos U.S. at their conference in San Antonio um, in a couple of weeks. That's fine. I mean, I understand why. But, you know, I... I'm only as good as the people that I work with. And um, I want to be mostly remembered, if I could, for having created pathways for emerging Latin and Latino museum professionals and scholars. Because those, those are the, these are the people that are going to take it to the next level. My work is, is, is coming to a close, and, and I need to step away and allow this new generation to really take these efforts these institutions to 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 new to new heights and i feel very good about the work that i've done in setting the stage for that to happen that's i hope will be you know if you want to talk about legacy which i kind of hesitate to do but if that's the legacy i leave that's the one i i want to be remembered for so be it thank you so much for being our guest today eduardo diaz thank you very much george and thank you to your team it was an honor to to be on this program Thank you for joining us on Healing with Dr. George, The Power of Chicano Latinx Art. Please continue to tune into our series as we explore the themes of self and community healing through Chicano Latinx art. Also, don't forget to visit the website www.latinoarte.com in order to view the beautiful array of Chicano Latinx art that is available to add to your own collection. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. are true overwhelming power sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili wickdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go i participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last